Welcome to Beneath the Surface. Always ask deep questions. Welcome to Beneath the Surface, episode 10. I'm joined today by uh, an old professor of mine, Bill Morrow, Professor Bill Morrow. He is the undergraduate chair of the Religious Studies program at Queen's University. He's a professor of religion at Queen's University, and he was a, uh, he, he taught the course Religion and Violence to me. He taught me many courses, but uh, Religion and Violence is one that, that stuck out to me. Um, and we're going to be exploring uh, the question, does religion cause violence? So, Professor Morrow, thanks so much for uh, agreeing to speak to me today. That's my pleasure. So, in the popular mind, the, the reason I wanted to ask this question is, in the popular mind, there seems to be a link between religion and violence, either historical, like we think about the Crusades, uh, or currently um, in the West, anyway, we kind of think of like Islamic jihadists or uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict or things like that, and we see religion as a driving force behind this violence. Um, is there any merit in that view, do you think, or at least why do you think people make that connection between religion and violence? Well, uh, let's try and uh, have a few uh, definitions before we go forward. Um, what do we mean by violence? We're talking about what human beings do to each other deliberately to harm uh, one another. Um, and um, what do we mean when we talk about religion? Uh, what is religion? Uh, of course, we could get into, you could have an entire podcast on what is religion. Uh, but I'm going to simplify things by th thinking of religion as a form of collective identity or creating a collective identity. So in a word, we're talking about tribalism. And when we talk about religion and violence, we're talking about the capacity that groups have to impose their will on other groups through force. So you can talk about this in a number of different ways. You could talk about this as uh, the dynamics of othering. You can talk about this as collective narcissism. And if you start thinking about the way in which groups impose their will on other people, either offense, uh, offensively or defensively, well, there are lots of different kinds of groups that are capable of violence. Um, now, we didn't see too much of that, for example, in the World Cup, <laughs> but uh, uh, soccer violence and sports violence is well known. Um, we also have uh, potent uh, examples of nationalism, um, in which uh, various kinds of uh, entities politically constituted uh, are willing to go at each other's throats. So it's within that context I think we have to talk about religion. Does religion create a particularly virulent form of tribalism? Does it, in fact, cement the interests of the group in a way in which uh, it feels um, perhaps duty-bound or even uh, divinely inspired to defend its rights and its, um, its uh, interests against all comers. 
Um, the interesting thing about this question is it's such a modern question, after all. It's only been for a couple of hundred years in the West that we can even imagine that there might be groups that constitute themselves religiously as opposed to non-religiously. For most of the world, for most of the time, this question is somewhat meaningless because it was simply made, there was simply an assumption that uh, any kind of group that constituted itself would have, um, here I'll use some language from cognitive science, um, culturally presupposed supernatural agents as part and parcel of its community. And these, uh, sometimes abbreviated as CPS agents, belong to the community, they have interests that the community has to serve, and they also serve the community's interest. And within that context, uh, the group seeks various ways of surviving uh, and uh, flourishing. All right. However, that's pretty general. Most of the time when we ask this question, does religion cause violence, we're really talking about specific religions. We're not particularly talking about what's going on in East Asia with, uh, say, the Buddhists in Myanmar or uh, even the conflict between uh, various Hindu sects in India. Um, religion in the West is often somewhat truncated to mean the monotheistic religions. And so when this question arises, it's often specifically in the context of the monotheistic religions that we know of um, in an umbrella-like way as Islam or Christianity or Judaism. Although, I think, from my perspective, there are Islams, there are Christianities, and there are Judaisms, and none of those movements is, is all that monolithic in some ways. All right, so that becomes an interesting question in and of itself. What is it about the monotheisms that might lead them towards a particular kind of virulent um, virulent uh, group narcissism. Um, and this is a very contentious question because uh, that means that we have to ask ourselves what what monotheism consists of. We also ask have to ask ourselves, who's asking this question and for what reason are they asking this question? Um, there's a uh, thinker uh, um, by the name of William Kavanaugh who wrote a book about this very question who thinks that religion has actually been scapegoated in the West. Uh, that is uh, part of the founding myth of the nation state in the West is this assumption that somehow the religions needed to be protected from each other because they were uh, um, inherently capable of going at each other's throats. Uh, hence, we have the nation-state. The nation-state saves religion from its own particular kind of uh, uh, predilections for violence. Uh, but at the same time, this myth also, to some extent, disguises the fact that a large amount of the uh, violence that's been done through the 19th and the 20th century has not been done by religions, it's done by nation-states. 
World War I was not a religious war. World War II was not a religious war. The Korean conflict was not a religious war. Vietnam was not a religious war. Um, and in that particular uh, sense, we could also talk about the great violent movements uh, in the 20th century, including uh, the Bolshevik Revolution and its subsequent um, uh, devolution into Stalinism, or we could talk about the uh, Chinese Revolution in 1949 and its uh, subsequent manifestation as uh, in uh, Maoist uh, uh, China. Um, both of those movements ended in the deaths of millions and millions of people. Uh, so, um, are we asking this question simply because uh, we're curious about it, or does it already give driven by some kinds of self-interests, uh, interests that want to put the focus on religion because that provides a very convenient screen so we don't have to look at other kinds of violence. And Kavanaugh makes a very interesting comment this way. He says, you know, look at North America, for example. How many people in North America do you suppose would be willing to die for their country? And how many do you suppose be willing to die for their religious beliefs? Well, I think it's pretty obvious that the... Um, accent would fall on, on nationalism. So um, this is not simply a disinterested question, it's not simply an academic question, it's a question which is freighted with ideological presuppositions and ideological commitments. And it makes answering it very difficult. Can, can we when I think about this question, because I, I've thought a lot about it, um, and the kind of, as you say, the, the presuppositions or assumptions that are, are made um, when people ask this question, like I'm thinking specifically about kind of maybe the new atheist type people, the Christopher Hitchens and the Richard Dawkins, and they seem to turn a blind eye to the type of nationalistic type of violence, or they at least, not even turn a blind eye, but they seem to think that that's the only type of legitimate violence. Um, I guess they don't seem to be able to em embed the religious violence uh, into this broader context of group violence as well as you just did, right? There seems to be lots of groups that are able to commit violence against each other, uh, of which religion is a subset of these. Um, why do you think that is? I mean, why has not why has the nation state been seen to wield legitimate violence, and then we kind of scapegoat religion, as you said, as being an illegitimate form of violence or a particularly violent form? Does that question make sense to you? Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, one of the classical definitions of the nation state is that it is a group that claims a monopoly on violence. Uh, therefore, no one else except the nation state, except those with, uh, and those including those within it, can use legitimate violence. Only the nation state. So we have police, for example. We have military. 
Um, but um, in most nation states, um, we would look askance at uh, paramilitary organizations that uh, seem to rival the army or, or um, para-police organizations as well. Um, so uh, there's a problem, however, that religions pose to the nation state. Because the nation state obviously wants a particular kind of buy-in from its citizens in terms of uh, commitment to its uh, politics uh, and also at the same time um, uh, giving the state a certain kind of, of ultimacy. Well, the problem with all religions and these are simply not simply the case for monotheisms, is that religions are prone to position that ultimacy somewhere else uh, with whatever CPS agents it, they happen to think they belong uh, there in, in, in communion with and connected to, whether that's uh, God or Hashem or Allah, or, uh, for that matter, we could even extend that easily to uh, other kinds of uh, religions as well. Um, so um, that's part of the problem. There's a certain in, inherent, I think, nervousness or anxiety about the legitimacy of the nation-state. In fact, in terms of uh, its uh, claims to be um, a kind of uh, uh, legitimate uh, social and political organization, it's a fairly Johnny-come-lately in terms of the history of the world. So that's part of the reason, but um, I don't think that is where Hitchens and Dawkins are coming from. Hitchens and Dawkins, uh, when they say religion, they really mean Christianity, and when they say religion, they actually mean fundamentalist Christianity. Uh, that's their uh, uh, bugaboo. Uh, and they have very strong reasons for wanting to uh, set themselves up against that. Not least of which because uh, fundamentalism as a reaction to the modern world uh, has a great deal of problems with the emerging scientific worldview that people like uh, Hitchens um, or, or Dawkins or um, I can't think of... Harris? Yes, the, uh, the Harris uh, um, would espouse. Um, and um, they resent this uh, uh, alternate discourse. They feel threatened by it. Um, there are reasons why they feel threatened by it, and some of them are certainly not illegitimate. Um, and, and so they tend to think that this is the only way religion can manifest itself uh, in the world. This is the only way, say, Christianity manifests itself in the world. Or they, they would look at something like the conflicts in the Middle East and see these as somehow uh, intrinsically uh, religious, ignoring, I might say, in this particular case, that uh, a large amount of the uh, turmoil in the Middle East 
is a result of uh, Western meddling with the politics of uh, Middle Eastern uh, entities and countries since the uh, end of the First World War, um, which is, you know, sort of convenient. Uh, we just blame it on religious religion. We don't have to look at the fact that uh, the West has been interfering with the self-determination of people in the Middle East for, you know, decades. So, um, so there's a tendency to want to focus on only a certain kind of religion as definite, definitive of the term. I think the interesting thing uh, uh, about Harris and, and, and Dawkins and, and, um, uh, and Hitchens is they almost take the fundamentalists at their word. Fundamentalists say, we alone are the true representatives of our particular kind of religion. Uh, anybody else is just some kind of apostate, wishy-washy liberal. Um, and it's almost as if there's a sort of reverse fundamentalism going on in the discourse of these particular uh, 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 thinkers. Um, and in fact, uh, religion, even as a group phenomenon, is uh, one which has uh, a uh, very complex relationship with politics and with human um, um, human uh, um, society. Uh, fact of the matter is, and this has been well established by polls, that people who are um, oriented to some extent uh, as they're practicing their religion and again I'll stay with the monotheisms for now but they're probably more supportive of charities than people who are not um, the healthcare system and the university system that we know of in this country and in fact in the western world both have their origins in religious institutions. Um, and we can also point to places in which uh, religions have not only acted malevolently in political situations, we can also look at places where they have acted positively. And I think one of the great examples of that is the um, um, dissolution of apartheid in South Africa. Yes, it was set up by a particular kind of uh, religious organization, the Afrikaners, who come out of the Dutch Reformed tradition. But many of the voices that were responsible for dismantling par apartheid were religious voices. Uh, and that includes uh, people within the country, like most famously Desmond Tutu, but also many of the uh, voices from the outside uh, were religiously constituted, including the World Council of Churches, uh, and they succeeded in doing something which was comparatively rare in the world. The apartheid was dismantled more or less nonviolently, and that is a kind of accomplishment which is by no means to be sniffed at. So, question is, 
if religions have a capacity for group narcissism and to compel it, do they also have within their symbol systems the possibility of dismantling it? Apartheid's not the only example. We could also look at um, uh, Gandhi's and uh, Satyagraha movement towards the nonviolent uh, um, um, opposition to the British Raj. We could also look uh, more recently uh, at the deeply religious roots of, say, uh, the civil rights movement in the States, uh, most notably led by Martin Luther King, but certainly not only by him. And um, even in this country, uh, we, um, we are now quite conscious, for example, of the damage that's been done um, by church-led institutions uh, on indigenous peoples in the country in terms of the um, residential schools. And this is a really black mark on uh, Christianity in this country. There's absolutely no question about that. Um, and <clears throat> hopefully consciousness of that is starting to permeate more and more in society as the uh, truth and reconciliation process continues. But it's also notable that the churches were um, ready and in fact um, um, active in apologizing to the native peoples well before the, for the federal government ever in, issued its apologies in, um, in the early 2000s. Can we... Here's something I've been playing around with recently and thinking about. You mentioned this kind of duality of, you know, you have religious institutions or whatever doing some good. Uh, it's not just the violence, and they shouldn't be scapegoated for that. Um, there's also some good involved. I was wondering um, if, you know, we think of extremism as sort of, uh, it's kind of a dirty word now, but I was wondering, um, like, it seems to me that the people that are most extreme in their orientation, either for good or for evil, always have some sort of driving religious force or we could even broaden that into ideology or or uh, just simply like moral values you know like they they stick to their values and they have like these really strong opinions about things and I was wondering like maybe it's not that religion causes extreme violence it's that religion or ideology causes extremism or like, and I don't mean extremism in that dirty word kind of sense. I mean it more in, like, just extreme behavior, uh, either for the good, right? Because we could argue that Gandhi's behavior was extreme. Uh, and we can also argue that, uh, you know, the apartheid in South Africa was extreme. Um, so, you know, does that, does that make sense to you that there's so, sort of... Uh, you know, you kind of have this ordinary populace that kind of just goes about their business. And they kind of set the, 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 the norm for behavior. And then you have these kind of outliers, um, or I shouldn't say outliers, maybe like large minorities of people that show more extreme behavior in the sense that they are uh, different from the rest of us. And sometimes they're different good and sometimes they're different bad. 
Right, this goes back to Eric Hoffer's thesis of the true believer. Uh, Hoffer was the famous uh, philosopher longshoreman who wrote a number of books uh, after the war, but uh, his uh, famous one, The True Believer, came out in the very early 50s. Uh, Hoffer was trying to think about uh, the nature of fascism, the rise of communism. This is just the beginning of the Red Scare. But he put it in the context of uh, fanaticism. But uh, his uh, book, and he claimed this quite specifically, was what you call a taxonomical uh, a study of fanaticism. And, and, and he used that, that metaphor taken from botany quite, quite seriously. Uh, that is, um, the deadly nightshade and the tomato belong to the same plant family. One is one you don't want to eat, and the other is one that you do want to eat. So people with strong ideas, if you want to think that that way, yes, are often at the forefront of, of movements, and they can be at the movements at the forefront of movements which are for good, and they can also be at the forefront of movements which are, are bad. Uh, extremism does seem to attract a certain kind of true believer, a certain kind of, of fanaticism. Uh, uh, and um, I would say, you know, there's Osama bin Laden and, and, uh, and Mother Teresa. Uh, they may have had very different ideologies, but they were both fanatics. Fan, fa uh, fanatics, there's no question about that. Uh, so... Uh, um, the question here seemed to be asking is almost a chicken and the egg question. Does the movement create the fanatic or does the fanatic create the movement? Uh, Hoffer would suggest there is a certain kind of person who feels disenfranchised uh, from the present, um, who is attracted to movements and often adopts an extreme position within them. You, you mentioned a while back in our conversation the idea of ultimacy and I'm gonna I'm gonna try and bring this back because I think there's a connection between what we're saying here you know we're judging these movements based on criteria different from the people that are partaking in these movements I think we're we're saying like oh uh, you know Osama bin Laden is bad and Mother Teresa is good and that kind of comes from our uh, belief in a nation state I suppose I, I think or at least like an, an idea of right or wrong not necessarily good or evil I would say that what marked the difference perhaps is that Mother Teresa believed in good and evil and I kind of as an ordinary citizen is like oh there's right things and wrong things it's just a bit of a weaker category um, right well I'm not trying to lionize Mother Teresa by the way Christopher Hitchens for example is very critical of Mother Teresa yes yeah um, but I guess coming back to this question of ultimacy um, how, how did, like for people like me, when I think about my own, I, I guess I align myself with the nation state more than I do with any particular religion. But in order to do that, I have to somehow believe that, uh, I should listen to Justin Trudeau and not God, you know, if, if God exists. And the reason is like, I, I'm not so sure God exists. Um, but like that seems like an incredible feat for a nation state to actually do. It's like you have all these people, uh, pre-enlightenment period, I suppose, that believe in God, and then all of a sudden, 
the nation state is the one that has a monopoly on right and wrong. Uh, and if you step outside of that definition of right or wrong for reasons uh, of religion, that your God has the actually appropriate definition of right and wrong, like if I'm going to listen to Justin Trudeau or God, I'm going to take God, you know, like, uh, so it just seems like a really, like, it just seems like such an impossible thing to achieve. Uh, like a nation state just seems like such an impossible well, thing to achieve. a nation state is an exercise in imagination, of collective imagination. And at that point, it has a lot of similarities with other kinds of groups, because whatever group we belong to, we're to some extent participated in through an active imagination. Now, um, sometimes that's easier to accomplish than, any, than, than in other situations. If I'm on a sports team, it's probably easy for me to imagine that I'm part of the team because of my proximity to my fellow players and the fact that we are physically engaged in a, a very particular kind of activity. Um, religions, to the extent that they can constitute the group, are clearly acts of the imagination uh, in many ways. And that, of course, imagination is both inculcated and reinforced by particular kinds of discourse. Some of those are textual discourses, and some of those are ritual discourses. Um, and they will inevitably, of course, also uh, affect uh, behavior in the group, uh, including um, where and, and how you allocate your, your economic resources. Well, um, it was uh, Benedict Anderson in his uh, famous uh, discussion or description of the ancient uh, the nation state, which who, who identified the nation state as. Uh, accomplishing an act of imagination. Uh, basically what it did, did was uh, the nation-state arose uh, because it allowed people to imagine themselves to belong to a particular group defined by territory rather than other forms of organization which tended to be dynastic uh, in, in the pre-modern era. Uh, they also, of course, were acts of the imagination reinforced by particular kinds of rituals and discourses. So the extent to which uh, you can galvanize a people of a particular area together is, is dependent on remarkably the same set of techniques. You've got texts, you have um, uh, various kinds of uh, uh, coercive instruments, um, but you also you also have rituals, uh, and so um, um, and I think to a certain extent um, this uh, becomes uh, a marker that also distinguishes some states from the other because some states have a stronger sense of collective imagination than 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 others, right? So um, Canadians, by and large, aren't as well known for their feelings of patriotism as, uh, say, our friends south of the border are. Um, um, whether we could ever get the same amount of uh, national fervor up uh, if Canada entered the World Cup as, say, Brazil or Argentina, I think is really quite questionable. Um, but uh, uh, 
the question is, uh, I think, really bound up with, with this, this phenomenon of the imaginary community. We all belong to imaginary communities. None of us escapes that. And what makes some imaginary communities uh, virulent, uh, uh, what makes some imaginary communities uh, more aggressive, um, those are really interesting questions to ask. And comes back to, uh, I think, a term I used at the beginning of this conversation, which is group narcissism. To what extent... You, you mentioned... Uh, that religious groups often have supernatural agents sort of guiding them or, or metaphysical. There, there's something in a religion that inhabits the metaphysical realm. Mm-hmm. Uh, to what extent is that true in nation states? Because uh, I suppose what, going back to my, my question about how you, know, you, you convince a citizen uh, that you know, they should listen to the laws of the nation-state and not to the laws of their god, it seems to me that you have to provide a better moral code or you need to compete with the moral code of, of God. I mean, so I, what, so I, what, yeah. I guess what I'm saying is I, I think there is an element of a nation-state uh, that inhibits, or not inhibits, inhabits the uh, metaphysical realm as well. Definitely. And there are, diff- there are various ways in which that happens. One of them is that you create the people as a kind of transcendent um, category. Uh, And um, uh, you saw that, for example, in the era of National Socialism, when they talked about Das Volk, the people. Uh, You can see the same thing happening in in, uh, Communist China, um, in in which... uh, you have this this idea that this category of collectivity you belong that you belong to has a kind of transcendent element to it. It it goes beyond the individuals who make it up. It has a, a kind of perdurance in history and also a a promise into the future that uh, the. Uh, um, individuals are to some extent expected to subordinate themselves to. Uh, even we do this, I think, to a much less successful degree um, when uh, Prime Minister Trudeau talks about what Canadians think. Uh, I'm reading this in the paper and I'm saying, well, hold it just a minute, I don't think I think like that. <laughs> Does that make me a Canadian or not? Uh, but uh, that kind of uh, um, groupthink is very deliberately pursued uh, in certain kinds of nation states. Uh, at that point, then, there's a parallel with religions because religions are also trying often to create a sense of community, common values, common commitments, and they do it through various forms of discourse, including texts and speeches and and rituals of all kinds. I guess I just never... I never bought into the idea that nation-states weren't very similar to to religions. And and I think it's because I think of groups more broadly than than most people do, maybe. Um, 
but yeah, I think I think that was just like especially among the kind of new atheist types, I think that really bugs them. You know, like the the idea that we as a nation state have our own gods that can compel us to violence uh, as well. Um, so well, Sam Harris doesn't seem to have any problem with the possibility of using violence against uh, what he. Re- regards as Islamic extremism, for example. So, uh, is, is there a difference between... This is an interesting question. But okay. then the nation-state is funding his research. <laughs> um, what, uh, what do you think the difference is between... If, if any, you know, is between the gods of an explicit religion like Christianity and the, you know, gods in quotation marks of a nation-state, uh, do they do they look different? I understand we're kind of venturing into a, a more theological ground here or a more uh, metaphysical realm, but uh, do you have any opinions on that? Or are they the same? Well... The God idea is a very complex one, um, and uh, depends an awful lot on what you think is, is going on. If you take an evolutionary perspective on uh, the development of this uh, particular um, Idea. Then you think about uh, the God idea is basically uh, an accident which arises out of some particular kinds of capacities for the human mind to want to find agencies in places where it is not agencies which are both potentially uh, threatening and which are potentially helpful. Uh, one of the big thinkers here would be Pascal Boyer. Uh, if that's true, then the God idea and the idea of the nation-state wouldn't be that far uh, apart. You'd both be dealing with um, projections of self-interest, which become symbolized in form. The difference being that uh, in the monotheisms, for example, that projection of self-interest gets a much more personalized kind of cast than, than maybe you'll find in, in certain of the nation-states. Um, however, I don't think that's the final word on the subject, because at least within the monotheisms, there's an inherent... Uh, uh, belief that uh, one has to be internally critical of one's God idea because there's always the danger of idolatry. Uh, God is, by definition, beyond uh, imagination to some extent, beyond uh, the human capacity to define in rigid uh, categories. Uh, and so I would say that uh, the gods of religions in general, and monotheisms in particular, are probably more sophisticated 
acts of imagination than you find in the nation state. We've set up in our discussion so far a kind of uh, a competition or between a nation state and a religion. Mm-hmm. So, so they're in competition with each other. One's always trying to subordinate the other. But there do seem to be examples today, even, um, of nation states kind of uh, taking in the religious gods to help them take control. Like, I'm thinking specifically of, uh, I know I read the Egyptian constitution in 2011 when they, when, when the revolution happened, and, uh, you know, I think one of the first lines was like, we, we want this to be an Islamic document. So there do seem to be concrete instances, too, where a nation-state, the gods of a nation-state and the gods of a monotheistic religion work together to oh, yeah. take control. Yeah. How, how does Definitely. that... How do, how do you make sense of that? I think that, that, that's true in a number of particular cases. Uh, uh, for example, um, uh, Calvinism, uh, former of... Christian Protestantism was deeply influential in the drafting of the United States Constitution, uh, and uh, there's a sense in which I think you could think of American civil religion as being a sort of uh, derivation of liberal Protestantism of a particular kind. Uh, what does it mean when uh, the uh, United States has uh, as its motto on their coins, in God we trust? Um, so yeah, uh, I think there's also lots of cooperation between religions and states, and there always has been. Um, and uh, um, this can be seen in many different ways. In our own country, for example, uh, the Catholic Church and the government of Quebec were in close uh, uh, cooperation with each other. What? right up to the silent revolution in the late 50s and the early 60s. Um, and uh, Catholicism, uh, even though it probably is only uh, observed in France by uh, a uh, small percentage of the population, somewhere around 11%, I think, uh, still seems to have a particular favored status. Uh, Putin in Russia, for example, has revived the appreciation of the Russian Orthodox Church, which is uh, he supports and in turn supports his regime in lots of different kinds of ways. Uh, yes, so religions and uh, politics have always been close bedfellows with each other. I once joked to uh, a um, a colleague uh, who studies uh, strategy and terrorism at the Royal Military College that uh, if I was uh, to define religion for the sake of a course on religion and violence, I would probably be uh, uh, tempted to say that I think religion is politics and prayer. Uh, And actually that's as much as any sums up my attitude towards uh, what we think of as religion and violence. Uh, religion is inherently political. Groups that are political will defend themselves and they will uh, be violent. Uh, the question that I often ask my, 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 my class at, when I teach this course is, is 
you know, why are we even talking about this? There's no course I know anywhere in the North American University System that has the title uh, Politics and Violence or Economics and Violence. Why is it problematic to talk about religion and violence? Um, and uh, that's because I think our expectation of religion is that it can do something else besides foment or promote group narcissism. Um, if it doesn't do it very well, uh, is that the same thing as saying it's incapable of doing it at all? We mentioned examples of the, the assumption in the question I just had asked was that a nation state may employ a religion to maintain control. So it was sort of like the religion was subordinate. But there are examples, like I'm thinking specifically of the Catholic Church, where it's kind of the opposite. It's, uh, it's primarily a religion, and then it employs political systems to, you know, in that instance, it seems like the religion is the, uh, the top dog in, in that relationship. So, uh, you know, what do you make of the fact that most of the world, in my opinion, I mean, I'm not a, I don't extensively study everything in the world, but it just seems like the relationship between politics and religion is mostly politics at the top at the moment. So the nation state has taken kind of control over the religious systems and employed it for its own uses. And then there's these kind of outliers like the Catholic Church that have it's primarily a religious movement, and then it has employed a political system as well. I mean, what is, is that? All right, so has, is that what, common? Has that always been the way it has been? First or? of all, that's not always been the way it has been. And uh, here's my cynical take on this. Uh, it's another way in which I try and shock my students. <laughs> um, because I sometimes talk about religion as a technology. Religion is can be thought of as a kind of technology. What it is, is a way of organizing power and the way it gets distributed in a particular kind of group. Uh, and for a long time, of course, the question that we're talking about is completely irrelevant. Before the Enlightenment, or before the Enlightenment takes place anywhere in the world, to talk about some kind of relationship between uh, some distinction between politics and religion is completely irrelevant. They were the same because they re that was a social technology that was meant to create a certain kind of group with a certain kind of a configuration of power and social relationships. What's happened to give the nation states a kind of distinction or freedom from the trappings of religious symbolism, I think is as much as anything an accident. And it's an accident uh, which is the result of uh, the emergence of new kinds of technologies which aren't necessarily defined by religious interests. Um, 
and so uh, um, that's got to be part and parcel of the um, development of our so-called secular society or the spread of secularism in, in the world. Um, and that's the fact that uh, there are technologies for social organization, for the distribution and accumulation of power, which are now at the disposal of human beings, which no longer have to be represented or symbolized using religious or mythical terms of the kind we used in the past. And uh, the expansion of um, this particular kind of technological revolution, beginning with uh, its early days in, in the Enlightenment, uh, freedom of science from dogmatic control um, has led to uh, the uh, development of political systems which are able to imagine themselves without reference to uh, um, uh, CPS agents, culturally presumed supernatural beings or agents. And uh, I think that, in part, that's the explanation as well. Uh, now, the interesting thing about it is you will find extremists also taking a hold of technological advances, <laughs> but what they want to do is rein in the state and control it. When you were... So when you were talking about technologies there, I just want to make sure you were talking about literal technologies. Yes, right? I was. Uh, mm -hmm. Like 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 the telescope or like the that's right or or like Although, uh, cars or automobiles and that kind of thing. I think rituals are technologies as well in a particular kind of yeah. way. Uh, uh, you don't think maybe that a, a you know a, a bar mitzvah or or the mass is is a technological operation. Uh, but uh, I'm not so convinced about that. I, I guess uh, what I was wondering is the scientific worldview, you know, the emergence of the scientific worldview seems to depend on a lot of the development of a lot of tech, like literal technologies, right? right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, like, I'm, I'm even thinking, like, the flat earth. Like, we might all be thinking the, the earth is still flat mm -hmm. if we didn't have an automobile or an airplane mm -hmm. or a spaceship that we would be able to, to see that from. So I, I guess I'm, I'm just going back to your idea that uh, the emergence of the nation state and secularism might have just been an accident, you know, like, uh, you know, uh, these technologies needed to be developed first bef before a scientific worldview could ever hope to be, you know, popular on, on this on this planet. So, uh I, I don't know that the history as well, maybe as I should, but uh and maybe it's a kind of chicken and the egg thing too, right? Because you need to a certain extent to develop a telescope to see that the earth moves around the sun and not the other way around. Uh you know, you need a technological worldview or a scientific worldview to even develop the telescope, but you need a telescope to maintain the, the scientific worldview as well. So I, I guess, uh, yeah, you're right. There does seem to be an element of, like, accidentalness about it. Uh, and the result is that we have competing mythologies now. 
a mythology, scientific worldview, I think, has its own mythology and uh, its own account of itself. Um, and so do various kinds of uh, religiously, more religiously constituted uh, forms of the imagination or the social imagination as well. The scientific worldview, we'll end on this because I think this is an interesting question, hopefully. The scientific worldview seems to be ashamed of its own mythology. It seems to be below it, you know, the, that, and that's expressed in the kind of Sam Harris types. Uh, you know, he wants everything to be material, uh, and, and the values that are, are pulled from that material worldview, you know, have to be completely material. And, and the idea that there's a metaphysical dimension or mythology that surrounds the scientific worldview seems to be shameful to, to people like him. Um, whereas I think in other religious systems, they're not ashamed of their mythology. Where do you think that shame comes from? That uh, it's like a self hatred almost. It's it's weird. Uh, they deny that they even have a mythology. Um. Well, I'm not sure. I would think of people like Sam Sam Harris or 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 Dawkins as you know particularly burdened with shame. <laughs> um. Uh, but they're in they're they, in denial of the mythology. They, I suppose. they they seem not to want to ask the question about whether there's a difference between science and scientism, which is the belief that somehow, if we have enough money and enough time and enough resources. Uh, we can penetrate to the all the mysteries of the universe. We can come up with a satisfactory uh, account of um, the universe. Um, that is uh, that. Um, there's an inherent rationality in the universe, and um, I think that uh, one of the things that religions in general try and grapple with is there's a certain irrationality to the universe, which just escapes human reason, and the question is whether uh, we have to learn to live with a certain amount that we can never know, never understand, or not. Final question. A book that you're embarrassed you haven't read? Uh, I'm embarrassed I have not read Steven Pinker's The Angels of Our Better Nature. You and me both. So... Professor Morrow, thank you so much for talking with me. It was an interesting conversation. I feel I learned a lot, and hopefully uh, my listeners will find value in it too. Um, for those uh, that are listening, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram, at uh, BenTheSurface, and you can download this episode and others on iTunes and Android um, and listen to them in your car or, or while biking to school or doing whatever you, you want to do. Um, so thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. Bye.
color in pain I remember it clearly You were calling my brother's name We stayed up all night Watching you with Nico's eyes Sharing childhood memories We were trying not to cry Miss Diane, over and out, hope to see you soon, was your biggest fan, without a doubt, you lit up the Without a doubt